This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, geologist and cosmochemist Natalie Starkey is joined in conversation by CIIS's Joshua Fields to explore her work studying the composition and behavior of comets. This event was recorded on June 28, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to CIIS. And I have a special surprise for everyone tonight. We have not one, but two British accents on show. So your delicate Californian ears will be just delicately massaged throughout the evening with these, um, with us Brits. So anyway, welcome. And it's a pleasure for me to introduce you to Natalie. Um, Natalie, I would love to start by asking you what your childhood was like in the sense that was there a particular moment where you thought, I want to look at stars? Do you know what? I'm going to say no, there wasn't, which is going to maybe surprise you and upset you slightly. I've always had a massive fascination with science in general, but I didn't know when I was little that I wanted to be a scientist because I'd sort of never really considered that as a job, mostly because I'd never really seen anybody being a scientist. You know, I'd seen it on the TV, but I didn't really know it was a real job. I really loved animals, so I wanted to work as a vet, work with animals, but it turns out that when I did work experience at a vet's, I didn't enjoy it very much because I found out it was actually quite mundane. They had the same operations to do every day, and I thought, oh, actually, it isn't what I thought it was. But I knew I liked science, and that was sort of led me on my route. And I got to um, what we call A-levels in the UK. This is the stage where you're kind of 16 to 18 and having to specialise. And we actually just have to choose three or four subjects to study, which is um, a very different system to the US. We have to specialise very early, which has its problems. But I didn't mind that because I knew that I wanted to study science and um, actually came across geology. So I was, I was doing chemistry and math, or maths as we call it at home. Um, and I needed a, another science. Now, now, as a woman, I was put off doing physics, which is a massive problem still um, throughout um, a lot of the Western world. It's not such a problem in some other countries, um, especially like Asian cultures, but in the UK in particular, girls studying physics, it's just not happening. And I was put off for the same reasons. I thought it was too hard. I thought I wasn't going to be good enough. And I thought it was only for boys. And I'm so annoyed with myself, with my 16-year-old self, because actually at school, I've been very good at physics. But anyway, so I was put off studying physics. And it turns out now... I'm doing a lot of physics, so that's kind of embarrassing. But I ended up doing geology instead. I went to see the geology teacher, and he was like, you know what, you should come and do geology. I think you'll enjoy it. And I was like, I don't even know what geology is. Um, and he said, well, look, we go to Tenerife. So Tenerife is an island just off Africa. It's part of Spain. And he said, we go to Tenerife at Christmas, just before Christmas, and we do some field work on the side of a volcano. And I was like, oh, OK, that sounds good. And he was like, you can drop it after that if you want. If you really hate it, 
you can stop studying it. And obviously, I was completely sold after this trip. We were, for a week, driving up the side of the volcano and getting out every day, climbing down lava tubes, and it was absolutely amazing. And from that, I just suddenly had this spark of interest in geology and studying how the Earth works and then ultimately how the Earth was formed and in the solar system. So it was sort of an organic process. I can't say, like, suddenly I looked at the stars and wanted to be an astronomer or something. It was, it was very much like study science and then that's how I kind of got there in the end. So, so I'm curious, so even when you were younger, can you, imagine, can you remember any times what kind of feelings or felt sense came when you were out looking at the, the nighttime sky? And I, I ask you this because, I mean, I think many of us here will share the kind of sentiment that we've all had this almost existential prodding from the night sky that's just sometimes just catches you in this moment of what is this? I know. Can, can you remember any of those? Well, yeah, moments? and I remember the first time I really considered the universe, and I was kind of like, okay, hold on, we're, we're sitting on this planet, okay, I understand that, that's fine, and then we look at the stars, and these, these are stars, these are actual suns, like our sun, like so far away that it's unimaginable distances, and that they might have planets around them, and I'm like, oh, goodness, this is blowing my mind already, and then you move further out to the galaxies, and then you're getting into the universe, and then I start to think about, you know, I, I, the first time I pondered over, like, how did the universe form, and what is outside of the universe, and it, it does blow your mind, and I feel like sometimes, like, a human's actually built to not be allowed to think about it because we're like, if we think about that, it's going to blow my mind too much. And so I think, oh, people who do that as science, that's not my my science field exactly. So I don't know how they do it without kind of losing their mind slightly. But um, but that is fascinating. And so yeah, I love looking up at the night sky and I love all the meteor showers that happen because you know you just lie out in the evening and it's great in California. Not so good in the UK where it's freezing, but in California it's great. You can in, sit out at night without dying um, and you can. Just just watch these meteor showers which you know little pieces of dust in in the night sky from space so yeah I love that well it's great to sit down with you I mean it's it's doing doing what you do as, as a cosmochemist and someone who does look into the universe as you do I think it's almost like a pipe dream for so many people everybody everybody must want to sit next to you at a dinner table and say <laughs> like what do you actually do I know I, tr I tend to stay quiet and I'm like I won't mention it just yet <laughs> I don't want to ruin everything but yeah because yeah, everyone is... else's job sucks compared to you but the problem is I spend a lot of my time with other scientists working in this field and I'm in awe of there so on Monday I met a girl who were oh, I say a woman who works um on on like NASA missions and I was just I was like you have the best job in the world and she literally is like testing out Mars rovers and I'm like I'm jealous of her job I mean it's ridiculous you know so yes I think everyone's always envious of other people's jobs but I do obviously love what I do and I'm so pleased I've been able to find a career that I have such a passion for because I know that it's not always possible for people to do that so I feel very lucky that I found something that I love so much. So tell me about your transition so my understanding is you did your PhD in Scotland mm -hmm. well done. I know, it's Fantastic a good place. Fantastic place to study. <laughs> good people from Scotland. We're all, a, a good bunch of people. Um, what was your, and you, you did your PhD in um, the geochemistry of Arctic volcanoes. Yeah. Tell me about how does one get from the transition from volcanoes 
to what we're going to speak about tonight, which yeah, is comets. It's, it's a funny one, isn't it? It does seem like it's very far removed, um, comets and asteroids to volcanoes, but actually it, it isn't that far removed. So volcanoes are what got me into science. Um, and obviously standing on the side of a volcano in Tenerife was like that initial spark of interest. And then I've since, I then visited volcanoes in the Arctic and Iceland and um, in the Caribbean. I got to work um, as a volcanologist on a tiny island called Montserrat, which is a British overseas territory in the middle of the Caribbean. It had a devastating volcanic eruption and um, and half the island is gone and it's it's now still exclusion zone and everyone had to move off the island anyway it was this fascinating place to study and that was part of my master's research and then the Iceland work was sort of my PhD and what I started getting really interested in was how volcanoes work where they come from what forms them from inside the planet and then what that brings you back to is pretty much how the planet formed. So you're starting looking at geology and you're studying the Earth, but actually what you're looking at is the Earth as a planet, which a lot of geologists don't necessarily think about. The Earth is a planet like any other, like Mars, like Venus. And so you start to turn it into more planetary science. We're not just looking at it as geology, as, as Earth-based science. So it wasn't a huge leap for me to move out into space because I was looking at how our planet formed. And then what I moved on to doing was actually looking at how the solar system formed and how all the objects within the solar system, not just the planets, how, how they all came together. So, And the link there was actually the, the special mass spectrometer that I I was using the instrument in the lab. Um, so for my postdoc that was followed on from my PhD, um, it was actually using a new type of the mass spectrometer, mass spectrometer that I'd been using in my PhD. And it was just this natural leap. I was interested in how, in how that worked. And the postdoc was offered and they said, well, you're going to be working on comet and asteroid samples from the NASA Stardust mission and from, you know, this Japanese mission. And I was like, well, this sounds amazing. Okay, I may have to leave behind my volcanoes, but I think comets and asteroids are okay. Okay, so well, so it was kind of a natural thing. I took the job not really knowing an awful lot about comets and asteroids. Um, and it turns out it was a quick learning curve to, to get to where I am now. So. <laughs> so please enlighten some of us about what even is a comet? And, and how does it distinguish, how does it, how does it differ from an asteroid or a planet or something like that? So the classic model of these objects puts the comets as having formed really far out in this solar nebula. So the solar nebula is kind of the cloud that formed around our young sun as it was as it first kind of started to form. Um, and it was this cloud of gas and dust and ice. Closer to the sun, it was very hot. And further away from the sun, um, it was very cold because obviously the sun's light doesn't reach that far. And the comets sort of formed way out in this cold outer reaches of the solar nebula. And they were some of the first objects to form in the solar system. So they are literally as old as the sun. They are 4.6 billion years old. And they've just kind of collected up all that early material, the gas and the dust and the ice, and kept it in their little home ever since. They've, they've stayed out in the outer solar nebula and they've just stayed there and preserved that material perfectly. So the reason we want to study them is because they have this, they're like a little time capsule. They preserve the starting conditions of our solar system. So if we want to understand where everything came from, they're a really great way to kind of probe to find out. Now the asteroids on the other hand, they formed a little bit later. They formed really close to the sun. The asteroids are essentially the leftover building blocks of the planets. So they're the bits that didn't get made into a planet. It was a very chaotic time when you form a solar system, you form planets, and there's a lot of collisions happening. And so you build up material gradually, but then there's another collision that might break apart a planet that's forming. So the asteroids are literally the leftover bits that didn't get made into a planet. And they're now sitting between Mars and Jupiter, most of them um, in the asteroid belt. And 
we can look at those to try and understand how the planets formed. Now, you could say we could just look at a planet to do that. There's, you know, Mars, Venus, Earth, whatever. We can look at any of those, but actually what's happened on those is they've evolved over time. So we know that Earth has gone through plate tectonics. Most people have heard of plate tectonics these days. It's a, it's a fairly modern theory. What it is is that the surface of the Earth has, has changed over geological time. It's very slow. If you're a human, you think, oh, it's not actually moving very quickly, but over geological time, our surface has completely changed, which means that if we want to understand how we were formed initially, we've got to unpick all this geology. So if we look at the asteroids, we don't need to do that. They sort of stayed as they were formed, 4.5-ish billion years there's, there's ago. There's less layers to kind of exactly. dig into conceptually. So yeah. it's kind of going back in time and just starting from day one. So that's why they, they have different uses. The comet's slightly older and the starting ingredients of everything and then the asteroids tell us a lot about how the planets came together. So I'm going to say, just to put a caveat in here, that actually that's a very classical view and there's a lot of overlap. And it, that's part of what I have to discuss in my book because some of the missions that went to visit them discovered that actually it's not as simple as that picture that I've just painted there. That you can get rocky comets and icy asteroids. Exactly. So we've got some asteroids in the asteroid belt that have ice on them and quite a bit of ice. So when they go past the sun, if they get knocked out of the asteroid belt and go past the sun, they produce a tail like a comet. So we look at them and go, oh, it's a comet because it has this beautiful tail of icy material streaming off the back. And that is what we would class as a comet. But actually, it's an asteroid from the asteroid belt. And equally, we can have some um, objects out in the, it's the Kuiper belt, which is where Pluto is and actually where most of the comets are found. Some of the objects out there are not necessarily as icy as we might expect. One of the issues is we haven't been there very much, so we haven't really imaged these objects. We don't understand them very well, and this is partly why I do what I do, because I want to understand what is out there. The problem is it's really far away, so... Just a wee journey away. Yeah, it takes forever to get there, so... <laughs> and where are the... Can, you, can we see comets many comets from, from Earth right now. What are the what are the what some of the closest ones to us at the so moment? So we have, okay, so there's two main comet homes. There's the Kuiper Belt, which is past the orbit of Uranus, and then there's the Oort Cloud. Now, we've gone through the Kuiper Belt with, um, the, with various missions. The New Horizons mission is currently transiting through, so it's seen Pluto, and it, I mean, that mission has achieved so much. It looked at Pluto, which is no longer a planet. It's a, you know, it's a dwarf planet. It's a Kuiper Belt object. Um, and it's going to look at some others. I think next year it's going to be getting to one of the others. And, and these are like unknown worlds. They're, you know, this is proper space exploration. We really have no idea what we're going to see because we can't really image these objects from the Earth simply because they're so far away and they're too small and they're not bright enough to actually image. Um, now, the other weird thing is that the Oort cloud, where we say there's the shell of um, comets that surround the solar system, okay? But we don't, we've never seen any of them. It's a theoretical cloud so of how, comets. How do we know they're there? We know they're there, well, we think they're there, because we've got to balance out the mass of the solar system somehow, and we know that there should be something out there. But this is where we come to that whole discussion of, you know, is there a planet that we haven't seen? And I always find it really funny when, you know, planet nine, basically, is it out there? And I'm like, well, surely they should know by now, because if a planet's there, they should be able to see it. But it could just be that it's so far away and relatively small that we just literally can't see it yet, and we need to send space missions out there. So... 
it, it is, yeah, I just love the, how exciting it is that we just, we don't know. And so that's partly why we need to send these space missions. It's just so far away that we're never going to get to the Oort cloud. Um, I think the, um, some of the missions, it's literally like 18,000 years it would take. They're already on their way, but it's, you know, not going to happen. So it just kind of puts into perspective how big the solar system is. Yeah. So I'd love it if you could give us a kind of chronological rundown of starting from the Big Bang to where we are now and the role that comets have played in that. So I know you said it was 4.6 billion years okay, ago. Okay, so the Big Bang would be like the beginning of the, the universe. Yeah. So if we go from the start of our sun, that, that would be the 4.6 billion years ago. So we can start... So what we start there, we're in a galaxy and we're sitting in interstellar space. So interstellar space is this really diffuse part of space. It's got very few particles in it. Um, it's got some molecules of gas and dust, but it has got organic matter, interestingly. That doesn't mean life. It just means carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and a bit of oxygen. It's not, it's, you know, don't get excited and say there's little bugs out there. It's just organic material. Um, and We're going to get onto extraterrestrial life will. in a little bit. And that's quite fine. <laughs> and there's also water ice out there. So there's all the ingredients for forming a solar system. And what happens is at some point, um, this cl the cloud, these particles will sort of get mixed together and they we create like denser areas and we create molecular clouds which is where we can start to form um, suns out of stars basically the sun is our star and I think that's the only one you know we, we only call our star the sun um, so it, it's all different stars we can form and as the density increases and we start to form a star and it's very hot um, we then create this cloud of material around the sun as it's forming and it's this cloud of material which is then just made up of that same material that was in interstellar space and in, in the galaxy um, that then forms all the planets so you've got this swirling cloud around this young sun Sun, which is very hot and it's this burst of light and heat at the beginning of the solar system forming and then gradually over the next few million years potentially within a couple of million years you start to form some of the major planets so it's hard to know for sure we can look at other um, solar systems or star systems that are currently going through this stage right now and, and actually we can image those with telescopes and that's very informative for telling us how our own star system formed. Um, but obviously, we don't know for sure because it, was, it happened 4.6 billion years ago. And it, it, we've got to unpick so much in the solar system to understand it. But this is the theory. This is how we think everything came together. So there were then all the gas and dust particles started coalescing together. And then more and more became planets and asteroids and comets and then eventually there was a lot of jostling around and then eventually things settled down into into the structure that we see today and a planet is literally round because it's so large it has enough gravity to pull all that material in to create a nice sphere and it's got so much gravity that it clears its orbit around the sun so that's why you've got those nice clear well, sorry, what, what do you mean by that so it knocks everything out of the way it's so large that as it orbits the sun and goes around it it just knocks all the rubbish out of the way and that's why all the asteroids ended up in in that belt between mars and jupiter partly um, and so you've got these nice clean orbits so we don't tend to collide with stuff very often anymore but obviously at the beginning of the solar system collisions were extremely frequent um, so it was a very chaotic time and so that was 4.6 billion years ago and so I'm, I'm super interested in obviously the, the 65 million years ago dinosaurs going extinct and what what impacts have comets have have they had when earth has been a more life 
um, when there's been water on Earth, when there's been just a, a little bit more dynamism on the planet? Okay, so, yeah, I mean, the first... Let's see. First of all, I should probably mention that we form the moon from a major impact. So basically the moon that we see today was the result of probably a Mars-sized object. We call it Theia, um, T-H-E-I-A, commonly. Um, and we think it was about Mars-sized, colliding with the planet. So this happened about four and a half billion years ago. So very early days in the solar system. But our planet at that time probably had some surface oceans. It was probably somewhat developed. Um, and this large impact came in. And the idea is that it probably vaporized the entire planet at the time, which is quite shocking. It was such a large impact. But from this vapor cloud, basically literally turning all the rock into just molten and vapor, um, we then formed a moon. And that kind of grew out of that vapor cloud and the Earth then coalesced again back into the Earth. And we ended up with this system where we have a moon. There's different ways of forming moons, but that is one of the major mechanisms of forming a moon. So I kind of look at these... Um, impacts is, is interesting because without large impacts in our history, we wouldn't be the place we are. We, we literally, we probably couldn't have life on our planet without the moon. It's a very important object in our system. Um, but also, obviously, if that happened today, it's a large impact that size isn't going to happen today. But a, a big impact could happen, just not something the size of Mars hitting us. But a large impact today could really spark disaster. Like you mentioned for the dinosaurs 65 million years ago, well, 80% of the animals on Earth at the time died off. And if the same kind of object hit today, humans would be some of the first to go. We're very sensitive animals. We need clean water. We want a nice, clean atmosphere. And actually, it was probably the atmosphere that was the biggest problem for the dinosaurs because basically when this object, asteroid or comet, collided with the Earth, it, it kind of threw up so much dust and, and rock material into the atmosphere and then that encircled the globe and basically just made it uninhabitable and you know nothing can grow and so most of the animals die off and we would definitely be the first to go we are so reliant on um you know global transfer of food around the planet we need clean water that we would definitely not survive very long so just on your point on, on the word water um i'm i what is this what it has what is the relationship between comets and water Okay, so yeah, planet. I mentioned that we had probably had some water very early on in our right. history. So probably like from the start of time, I mentioned there was water in interstellar space. So that initial cloud that our solar system formed from had interstellar water. Now, the idea is that that water was probably destroyed in the first formation of the sun because it was just literally too hot. It would just um, break apart the water molecules into hydrogen and oxygen. There was no longer any water. So then where did our water come from? Well, luckily... As the solar system was in its early days, interstellar material from this cloud around that still hadn't formed into planets, it still rained down material. It would literally just rain down gas and dust and water molecules. So our water probably came from interstellar space. Our water is literally older than the sun, some of it anyway. And then we went through all these impacts and maybe some of it got evaporated away. So it's a very complicated story, like how our water got here initially and then how it survived its history in the solar system. But we think some of it did survive from the very beginning of time, but not all of it. So the other theory is that some of our water almost certainly was delivered from comet and asteroid impacts. So we know that the comets formed really far out in the solar system and preserved this water ice that was out in, in the solar nebula. And when they were diverted into the inner solar system and they collided with the planet, and there was a massive phase of collisions around four billion years ago, so after the moon had 
formed. Um, then there were a lot of comet and asteroid impacts, and you can see the effect of that on the moon. You look at the moon today, and you see that cratering history. Now, we don't see that on Earth, because I mentioned we have plate tectonics, so we've resurfaced our globe continuously, so we've lost that record of cratering, but the moon preserves it for us. So we know it happened, we can date those craters. Now at that time, we could have brought in an awful lot of water. You might think that if a comet collided with the Earth, the water would just boil off, because obviously it's gonna be a high energy impact, but they think that actually it doesn't. They think some of the water does survive, and if you get impact upon impact, you just get some water forming, and then basically we form an atmosphere, and then we can start to condense oceans out of that. So. It could also be the asteroids brought in water, because although we say the asteroids formed very close to the sun and they shouldn't contain a lot of water, well, they actually do. Quite a lot of the asteroids are really water-rich um, and it's locked up within their structures. It's not like surface oceans or ice as such. It's, it's kind of locked up within them. So there's a big debate at the moment and it's, it's really active research as to how many comets and how many asteroids hit and what type of asteroids and what type of comets and what they brought with them. Um, and it's an incredibly complicated story but it's partly how we start to understand where we came from because obviously water and life go hand in hand without water we don't think we can get life it's um, a really important solvent for biological processes to occur um, we need a liquid solvent for that to happen and there aren't many that can survive at the right temperatures on the planets for life to, to occur so we kind of want to understand both at the same time where the water and where the organic matter came from and it so that's part of yeah so that's, I suppose that's the, um, the beautiful duality of all existence. It's that comets have this, and asteroids, this catastrophic potential, and yet simultaneously could very well have been the bringers of life. Yeah, so this is this, is this um, kind of personality I like about them. I've taken that um, into the book, and I've said it's this kind of Jekyll and Hyde nature of them, because, you know, should we fear or revere them? And it's it's a question, obviously, I, I think you probably can guess which side I lie with that, but I absolutely adore comets and asteroids, and yes, they have shaped our past, and they've destroyed life in the past, and they have the potential to do that in the future, but at the same time, without them, there's a very high chance we wouldn't be here at all. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, what, what do you think? Like, do you think we should fear them? Well, yes, we should. But if we fear them, then the best thing to do is try and understand them better so that we know what we can do about them in the future if one is headed our way. Yeah, some a sort of like healthy, healthy, reverent respect. Yes. Um, it's kind of understanding your enemy, I think. <laughs> right. Um, no, that's, that's really interesting. Do you, so this is, this is the, the big question then, as someone who's interested in comets and asteroids, how safe are we? Yeah, now and that that is a good question. Um, and don't worry, we are quite safe for the time being. For I mean, scientists are saying for about the next 100 years, we, we should be safe. So we all, unfortunately, we're probably not going to live any longer than we that. Never you, know. you never know. You there never may know be with some life yeah. <laughs> major advances in science yeah. in the next few years. You never Come know. back for our next program. Yeah. <laughs> Artificial intelligence and life longevity. Yeah. That would be great. So we're probably safer now from a large impact. And what we say by large impact is something that would be life-changing. That would be, you know, the Earth's going to be fine. It's survived a lot in the past, but life on Earth is not necessarily going to be fine. And humans haven't been here very long. In the great scheme of things, we've been here as Homo sapiens about 200,000 years, which is a huge amount of time, especially when we just look at our own lives, which are roughly 100 years at most. Um, 
and the Earth has been here four and a half billion years. So, you know, it, it seems like we are quite insignificant, but it doesn't mean that we don't want to protect our future and the future of our descendants. And I feel like, you know, yes, we haven't been here long, but it would be nice if we could be here a bit longer. And we've done quite a good job of ruining our planet recently. So I think, you know, we, we're trying to maybe fix that at the moment. Some countries are trying a bit harder than others. But also we want to potentially protect ourselves from impacts from space in the future. Okay. So tell me, how, how do we do that? So let's just say the, the, the alarm bells go off. NASA are like, guys, we got a problem. Houston, we got a problem. This is like Armageddon. <laughs> yeah. What, what does, I mean, I'm not going to say what does one do? Like, do I go underground? Do I do, but what, does, what would we do systemically, societally? What can we do other than colonize Mars, which I'm going to get onto in a little bit too? So I think one of the problems is it depends how much notice we have. So there's always these oddballs out there that we don't know are coming. Um, so we say we're safe for 100 years, but there is always the possibility that there is some rogue object out there. Like we saw recently, there was this um, asteroid that was transiting through our solar system, but it didn't actually come from our solar system. It's called Oumuamua, which is, I think, um, it's Hawaiian for, I can't remember exactly, some, some ancient traveler or something. And it's literally come from another star system. This asteroid left its star system and has been traveling through the galaxy for absolute eons, billions of years. And it's just gone through our solar system. But we, we had no idea it was going to come through. And it was going so fast because it's come from somewhere else that actually it, it isn't captured within our solar system. It's just gone through because it's so fast the sun's gravity isn't enough to capture it into orbit. Right, right, give me some give me an idea how fast. No, but I have absolutely no idea. That's a very good question. But it's it's insane. Like we couldn't even launch a mission to go and catch up with it. It's just zoomed through. Um, and so we weren't expecting that. So there's always these objects. Now the chances are they're not going to hit our planet. Our planet's quite small in in the solar system. So, you know, it's kind of like the chances of actually hitting us and not hitting another planet like Jupiter, which is much larger, yeah. you know. But, but, but is there like a, did, do NASA have a, a plan? So yes, they're working on it now. So there's a whole field called planetary defense. Um, and what they're saying at the moment is that we sort of need about 10 years notice, which is not unreasonable because we can sort of see these objects far enough in advance but 10 years would be enough that we could plan a mission launch a mission and then work out what we're going to do about it so they are working on that right now they they have missions that could launch um they're not ready to go but they would be able to get something together quickly enough so what they're working on at the moment is what they would put on that mission so what kind of instruments what would we do about this object heading towards us and this is why i say we need to understand more about what these objects are made of and how they're put together because that will really determine how we deal with the object so if we had a big blob of metal and there's some asteroids that are literally just made of, of a big blob of iron nickel metal so you're probably not going to be able to destroy that. It's going to be extremely hard to blow it up. And there are some ideas that we could just detonate a nuclear explosive next to it and just literally disintegrate this thing into pieces. And then if they do hit the planet, they're just going to burn up on re-entry and not really cause us any problem. But you're not going to be able to do that with a piece of metal, probably. It's like it's just too, too hard and too well held together. But a comet, on the other hand, well, it's made of ice and gas and dust, and it's not really very well consolidated. If you imagine just picking up some snow and then throwing in dusty, muddy material, it's, you know, that's going to be quite easy to break up in space. So understanding 
what you're dealing with is very important right. as to how but you're going to you deal with it. Before you know what shield to use, you need to know what weapon you're being attacked exactly. with. Exactly. Yeah. And there are ways that you might just be able to deflect it. You might be able to nudge it. And if you have a small nudge really far away, um, that's easier to do because you're going to divert it sooner than if you if you wait till the thing's really close, you've got to do a very big nudge to get it to go past the earth. Um, so I kind of love that it's sort of controlling the fate of, you know, our solar system. We're sort of working with our future and kind of I kind of love that that we're sort of ready to do that but yeah if we only had a couple of years notice um our options are limited we would almost certainly have to blow it up probably um and there is huge issues with that I mean obviously putting a nuclear weapon in space is not ideal um you're going to get nuclear fallout on planets and but <laughs> it's sort of like the lesser of two evils so I think at that stage yeah as humans on earth there would be absolute mass hysteria um but we would know. You see these reports in the news all the time. Oh, there's this massive asteroid that's about to go past Earth. And it's a load of rubbish. They're not, they are going to go past, but they're absolutely miles away and they're going to cause us no problem. If there truly is something coming to Earth, we will know and it will be very big news. But as I say, we're safe for now. Talking about putting nuclear weapons in space, I don't know if you've seen the latest... Um political movement on the right around space defence. Yes, with the Space Force. Space Force, yeah. that's it. Space Force, yeah. Maybe Space Force is on its way. It feels like it's something straight out of the movies, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah, because I always loved Armageddon in and Deep Impact, which were, I guess they were in 90s movies, I think now, or they even 2000s, I'm not sure. But I love that they sent up, you know, drillers, mining, you know, the Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck go up and, and drill into this asteroid. Now, in reality, we wouldn't send humans out. We'd send robots because they're more dispensable and we don't really like killing humans in space. But I love that they had this idea in this movie. The science in that in that movie is questionable, some of it, but the idea is, you in know... Hollywood movies? <laughs> it's crazy to that, think. Really? <laughs> science fiction, no. But, you know, it's actually sort of becoming a reality, although we wouldn't send humans, you know... Some of that is, is real. We could drill into these things and try and break them up. So, yeah, I kind of watched that movie. I watched it again recently just because I wrote about it in my book and I wanted to remind myself what was in it. And, I mean, it's highly entertaining. But, um, but yes, it's fun to watch the NASA scientists worrying about, about these issues. And that's what they are actually working on now. So, yeah, science fiction becomes reality, as yeah. it always tends to. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it tends to draw from the platonic realm of what might happen. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so just on the on the realm on, on the, the domain of NASA and going going into on a space mission. So you did your postdoc work. You did get to work with NASA this NASA Stardust mission. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about about that? So it was an absolute groundbreaking mission. It was a relatively cheap mission and it achieved a lot. So it was one of these ones where. They wanted to go and sample a comet, but if you want to go and land on a comet and bring back material, it's incredibly expensive. It's essentially two missions in one, because not only do you have to launch and get there, but you have to launch back off the object and get back to Earth. Um, so sample return missions are not done very often um, for that very reason, that it's just, it is expensive and technologically challenging. So Stardust had a way around this by they just said well what we're going to do is just fly through the tail of the comet so this comet was called Vilt 2 and it was flying past the sun and obviously this tail of material was being produced off the icy comet it was dragging off the ice and the dust into space so what they did was they made this little ten tennis racket style collector it literally popped out from the spacecraft and they transited through um, that tail of the comet and just picked up 
impacts of this material coming off the comet. And then what they did was closed up that tennis racket collector and they came back to Earth and brought back samples of a comet. So it wasn't like going to the comet and picking up a scoop of it and bringing it back, which you know they're now trying to do with a couple of missions to some asteroids, which are kind of coming up in the next two years. Um, but they still got samples. And it was a really groundbreaking mission for other reasons that because we'd never sampled a comet before or an asteroid. This was the first time we'd ever done it in space. That was space. the first mission. The uh, first time we've ever uh, sampled one. Okay. We only have samples from the moon. I think we. it's good to reiterate that, that we literally only have samples from the moon in terms of any other object in space. We've been to Mars a lot, but we have not returned samples from Mars. So... It, it's quite... Wait, we've not returned samples from Mars? No, we don't. So we have Martian meteorites. So bits of Mars were knocked off in the past by asteroids hitting it, and they've circled around in space and eventually ended up landing on Earth. So that's why we have samples of Mars on our planet, but we've never brought samples back. So it's only the moon, and we have a lot of samples from the moon, but we don't from anything else. Is that so. because what we've sent, I say we as if I'm part of the space agency, <laughs> is, the, if, is, the, is the, 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 the robots that we've sent up there, is it because they've just not come back? Yeah, and, and okay. it's that issue of like, the problem is we sit in a gravity well. Any planet sits in a gravity well because we're large and we have a lot of gravity. So launching material off a planet is really expensive and really hard to do because there's basically this exponential law. The more you want to put on the rocket, the more fuel you need, but then the more fuel you need because you've got more fuel to lift off and fuel's very heavy so if you then want to go to another planet and come back you've got to also take your fuel to come back again and then you have the same problem so you end up just needing more and more fuel and then more and more fuel and it just goes on so this is why we don't do it the best thing would be if we could go to mars and mine fuel on mars and then we could get back so this is part of the problem now the moon obviously hasn't got as high a gravity as a planet because it's a smaller object so that's why it's slightly easier to get off the moon it still takes quite a lot of energy but it's not as hard. So bringing material back from the moon is not as challenging. But this is just why we haven't done it. There are just literal rocket science problems. And so that's why we haven't done it. But going to an asteroid or a comet, slightly easier because they don't have gravity, but also harder because they don't have gravity. So trying to land on them is exceptionally hard because the spacecraft is not naturally being pulled towards that object. And how fast are they moving? Um, oh, actual numbers, I have okay. no idea. Um, I Not off the top of my head, but um, I mean, the so we could talk about the Rosetta mission because this was uh, the European mission um, that actually in 2014, basically chased down a comet in space. So they had to launch from Earth and do various um, gravity slingshots via Mars and the Earth to try and build up gravitational energy in order to catch up with this comet in space. So the comet was on its own orbit and the spacecraft launched from Earth, did all these clever slingshots and built up speed and then basically caught up with the comet from behind. And then it had to break because it was then going too fast and it had to break to then catch up and fly alongside the comet. So this... Um, is the first time we've ever landed on a comet or an asteroid. So again, this is why I speak about these two missions in my book, because Stardust the first to collect samples and Rosetta being the first to actually land on the side of a comet. And they had no idea what they were going to get find when they got to, to the comet. It's called 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko. Um, it's quite a complicated name. We tend to call it 67P CG because it's a very complicated name. Um, but we had no idea what it looked like. Literally, we thought it was just a round, potato-shaped comet. When they got there, they found out it looked like a rubber duck. And in the media, they had all these great images. Wait, wait. They Sorry, 
a literal rubber duck? Well, rubber yeah, it's got this head and then this kind of body, and it literally looks like a. I think you call them rubber duckies here. I think we call them anyway. It looks like one of those, and they had all these images and like the New York Times of this comet, you know, superimposed over Manhattan or something. And it was because it's it's fairly large. I mean, it's kind of like maybe five kilometers across, um, and it just looks like a this flying rubber duck. It's hilarious. So when we got there, it's the first time. How profound. Well, yeah, it's just it's <laughs> just lovely, um, but it's great because it captured the public's imagination. That's what was so great about that mission. That suddenly people were like, oh, it looks like a rubber duck. That's so cool. Um, and then we started to see what the surface of this thing looked like. And then the challenge was. A couple months after they arrived at the comet and have slowed down to catch up and they'd flown around in formation with this thing flying in space they had to choose somewhere to land and you know they'd only had a few months looking at it and they didn't want to send the lander down somewhere that looked too interesting because um, you know you want to land safely um, but equally you don't want to land somewhere that looks boring just a piece of ice because then it's not going to have very many interesting things to analyze um, and what ended up happening was that they just had to sort of drop the lander from the orbiter down to the comet you've got to remember the comet has very little gravity so this little lander is just free falling in space and they're hoping that by the time it gets to the comet which is also rotating and speeding around the sun that it's going to hit it and it's not going to hit it too fast that it bounces off and it's not going to hit it um, too slow that it, it will just miss it completely so this was you know the science and the engineering that go in into these missions is absolutely incredible and the mathematicians had just a couple of months to work out that whole landing to work out what they were going to do how they were going to land it and it worked it didn't go perfectly they actually bounced across the comet so they did hit it um, they hit it at the right speed but some of the instruments that were meant to hold it onto the comet like um, they had some harpoons that were meant to fire to literally like grip onto this thing they failed um, so there was a lot of issues but it ended up coming to rest on the comet luckily and not just disappearing off into space and it managed to take this laboratory with it and do analysis on the side of a comet which is the first time ever and it relayed that data back to earth so we've got still tons of data that was 2014 I mean that data is going to be being analyzed for decades to come there's an awful lot of it and trying to it's told us a lot about how that comet formed um, and comets in general so any, any particular new insights that might be so interesting? from both the missions um, Stardust and Rosetta we now know for certain that comets contain amino acids so they both found glycine which is one of the simplest amino acids I think this is always one of the most exciting stories because people are like oh life okay great okay it's not life it's an amino acid um, but it's in a comet and this means that there is that potential link we can still say we can't we don't need to rule them out we can say okay comets really could have brought in the building blocks for life to earth amino acids proteins proteins life exactly yeah. it's not life but it's it's a, it's a building block it's something that we would need to create life it's the you know the right starting ingredients um but we found out a lot more we we start we start to find out what kind of water is in this comet so one of the interesting things is that there's different flavors of water in the solar system um and what we want to know is if we analyse these flavours of water, we can work out where that water formed. So the water in comets, or in this particular comet, um, we say it's very heavy. So you've probably heard of heavy water. So literally, if you made an ice cube out of heavy water, it would sink in a normal glass of water because it's got more deuterium in it. And deuterium is the heavier isotope of hydrogen. And so the more of that you get. So it would be very cool if you could make heavy ice cubes. I think that would be a good party trick. But anyway, and you, you can make them if you want to, just to confuse people a little bit um, so this this particular comet contains this heavy water which comes from interstellar space so it's this water that came from before our sun so 
One of the things we found out is that actually this particular type of comet, its water doesn't look like the water on Earth, not the majority of our water anyway. So what we would say is this particular comet or ones like it can't have supplied our water. They could have supplied our organic material, but not our water. Now, the problem we can say now is that not all comets are the same. So this is where it gets extremely complicated because there's so many different types. So we're not ruling out comets completely. We're just saying that any ones that are like 67P um, probably didn't bring our water in. They could have collided with our planet, but they aren't responsible for delivering water. Um, but that's the exciting thing. We've measured a lot of other comets just with telescopes and looked at their water, and we've got a whole range of different values, some of which are very similar to the water on Earth. So they're still in the running, but we are yet to prove exactly what brought it in. <laughs> Mind-blowing. <laughs> One of the, um, the very alive themes right now in the press with Elon Musk and, you know, potential existential risks from AI is that we might have to get out of an ecological collapse. So we might have to get out of Earth sooner rather than later, with Mars being the most likely destination. Um, I'm fascinated to hear what your perspective is on this kind of mass um, species migration or if it's going to be that or it's just going to be centralized elite. How, what are some of the benefits or, and or challenges for us to get to Mars? Okay, so first of all, I'm going to say, when people say to me, do you want to go into space? I say, yes, I'd love to go into space, but I don't want to move to Mars. Oh, I really like Earth. I think it's a great place. My family's here. It's a beautiful planet. I'm sure I've got some family in Mars, well, from Mars. Yeah, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> If I move to Mars, I'm not going to enjoy it. It's, it's an environment that wants to kill us. We do not, humans are not going to survive on Mars without a lot of infrastructure in place. Um, it, you know, there's not enough oxygen. Uh, there's huge amounts of radiation. We, we would not survive very long. So this whole idea of, you know, you know, ruining our planet. Oh, don't worry about it. We'll just move to another planet. It's just not that simple. We need to look after our own planet. And I think most people do agree with that idea. But going to Mars is still a good stepping stone for being able to explore further into the solar system. Um, we need to sort of have a base somewhere else. Now, the moon is also a good place, and there is a lot of talk about putting humans back on the moon. Some people argue that we've been there, we've done it, why do we need to go back? You know, we did all that in the 70s, it's done. But the thing is, it's much easier for us to get to the moon and survive on the moon because it's relatively close to Earth, so we can take resupply missions there quite easily. Um, and it's got a lot of resources that we can use. There's water on the moon and various other things that we could use um, to actually build up a, a habitat there. And just, it would be easier because it's closer. Um, but it's a stepping stone to get to Mars. I do think humans will go to Mars. I, I don't think it's going to be somewhere where people are going to live for an extended period of time because there's just too many biological issues of humans and animals living there. We can't grow things at the moment. There's too much to get around. And it, so I, for me, it's very much science fiction still. But one of the exciting parts about exploring further into the solar system is that we have to look at ways to get there. So this is where the whole space mining issues come into it. And again, it sounds like science fiction, but space mining is, is actually fast becoming a reality. So and can you define what space mining is? So 
for, in my book, I've written mostly about comets and asteroids and mining those, but th there's also mining other planets and mining the moon. So it's just using these objects in space and mining them for their resources. So if we think about some of the asteroids, I mentioned that some are literally made of iron and nickel, and they have trace amounts of other precious metals like platinum and gold and all very expensive metals on Earth. Now, the thing is, if we were to go mine one of these and return somehow that material to Earth, um, we could, we, we just would never need to mine on Earth again because there's more in these, actually one that they're saying, there's one asteroid out there called Psyche, um, and I can't remember the numbers, it's like a hundred quadrillion dollars worth of metals, they think. I mean, it's just crazy. It's more than we've ever mined on the planet. It's more than our global economy. So obviously, if we returned the material from this asteroid, we would collapse the economy, and you know, that, that would be pointless then having gone there. Um, but without refreshing our precious metals on Earth, we're not going to be able to improve technology and continue to use it at the level that we are without ruining our planet further. And there's a finite amount of things like platinum on our planet, um, and it's very dispersed. So we have to ruin large areas of the planet to actually get what we need. So we can just pop into space. We can just go to a nearest asteroid and go, oh, okay, we'll mine this one. We're not going to notice it's missing. And then we can potentially bring back materials we need. But the other side to that is that they can also be used in space. So if we want to 3D print materials in space, and they have a 3D printer on the International Space Station that's being tested in this microgravity environment, um, that we can then just build the tools we need because we have all the raw materials in comets and asteroids, and we can then just use them to make what we need and build the infrastructure. So there are a lot of technological issues of mining in space um, and the missions that have gone there like the Rosetta mission and the up-and-coming OSIRIS-REx mission and the Hayabusa 2 mission so there's a Japanese one and there's another NASA mission and they're going to asteroids at the moment and they're sort of testing technologies that could be used in space mining that's not the purpose of those missions they're wanting to return samples to earth for scientists like me to analyze but these kind of technologies of trying to grab a sample from an asteroid or land on the side of it are going to be very important for space mining. We need to work out how to how to mine these objects, how to how to get them and how to get materials off of them. So there are major steps being made. The other issue is having, you mentioned Elon Musk, having um, reusable rocket technology. That's hugely important because we need to bring down the cost of launches in order to make it profitable. If we're going to be going to space all the time, we've got to be able to have reusable rockets. Um, and obviously, there's been huge leaps forward in that at the moment. I don't believe they're um, even breaking even in, in their businesses at the moment, but I think um, they will, and it has been hugely successful. Um, and it's not, it's Blue Origin as well. There's, there's various um, companies that are involved in this. And because they're competing and it's commercial industry um, and it's not a government-based thing, I feel like the progress is even quicker because you've got these, I don't want to say crazy people, but like crazy billionaires who are able to just throw money at the problem and are excited about the problem. And their ultimate goal is to maybe space mine or go to Mars. Um, and it seems kind of crazy to us because we don't have billion dollars to throw at things like that. But I think that's where the progress is, is really being made. So I think within... 10 years, potentially, I'm going to maybe just say, I'm going to put it out there and say maybe in 10 years we might start the first tentative steps into space mining. Being kind of observing these objects, looking at what they're made of and how we might go about mining them. In terms of returning materials to Earth, we couldn't really say because it'll depend how things go after that. So, yes. I want to move on to your book in a little bit, but I have a question on the tip of my tongue. Okay. Which is around, um, it can be summed up as this, are we alone? 
Oh. <laughs> um, well, in the solar system, I don't know. In the universe, I would say I think there's, there's life out there, um, definitely. Because it's just too large. For, for me, I think it's just too large for there not to, have to be life out there. Um, we haven't found any yet, obviously. In the solar system, I'm pretty certain there's nothing on Mars. We, we really, we've looked quite a bit and we haven't seen really any signs of life. Um, but there, there are interesting things about Mars. Like it has a lot of methane. We don't understand wholly where all that has come from. And it might be that there's fossilized life on Mars, which we just haven't seen yet. If we sent humans there, very quickly humans could start looking at the rock record and figuring this out. But robots, you know, it's a bit slower with robots. So. Mars, I think there's a 50-50 chance it could have had life in the past, maybe not even that much. Um, but there are other planets that, well, the moons around other planets that really could host life. Now, it's not going to be intelligent life because I think we would have seen it by now and it would have seen us and made itself obvious. But if we take Europa, for example, um, it's a moon and it has liquid water and it's got all kind of the right conditions for life to be there but we just haven't been able to investigate it in any detail yet so that's one of there's actually the Europa Clipper mission which is going to be going and to investigate this moon and kind of looking there but again I think it's going to be sort of simple life ocean-based if anything um, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was nothing there at all um, but I think in terms of our solar system it's hit and miss because it's getting a planet in the right location from the sun, not too far away, not too close, this whole Goldilocks zone that we talk about. Um, we need liquid water and there's not so many places that have the right conditions for liquid water. So that's why I say if we move out to exoplanets, the planets that are around stars orbiting around in our galaxy, um, I think there's a chance that we could have life out there. They're so far away that proving it is going to be a challenge. Is, is that the consensus among scientists? Like, do you guys propagate this one narrative and behind the scenes you're like, actually, we actually think there's aliens and UFOs? I think it's tricky. Um, there, there's a whole institute set up to look for life yeah. um, in exoplanetary environments. And one of the problems is, what are you looking for? Like when you're looking at planets that are so far away, um, so do you look for radio waves? Or how do you know they even built up radios? And, you know, it, it's kind of that kind of level. Well, okay, that's maybe a bit silly. So maybe we don't want to look for signs of civilized life and industrial things, but maybe we just need to look for the atmospheres. Does the atmosphere have the right conditions, first of all? And does the atmosphere have things that would suggest life is actually living on that planet? So we, we have to sort of break it down. We need to know that they've got water on them, but we also need to look at how that star formed. Is it the right type of star? Is it too hot or too cold? Um, and then one of the other things is, previously, we've taken out planets, exoplanets, that have gone through a big collisional history, like our own Earth, because we thought that removed all the water, which meant that we couldn't have life. But we found out that Earth has been through a massive collisional history, and yet it still has life. So it's sort of building up the criteria to go, what are we looking for? And what would we expect life to look like if we looked at our own planet from really far away? And that is the challenge, um, because we can't go there, we can't take a sample and look exactly at it perfectly, but we need to kind of understand what it would look like from afar. Fingers crossed, some, well, something will happen. Yeah, I, no. I, think it's, I think it's out there. We might never know in our lifetime, unfortunately. <laughs> so you've just written your book, Catching Stardust. What was the prompt? Why did you decide to write this book? 
Well, it's sort of been, yeah, it's been a long time coming. I was approached by the publisher a while ago, and at the time I was running a lab um, that I was doing my research in on these space samples. And I knew there wasn't time. Like, a scientist's life running a lab is not an easy one. It's, um, especially when you're running the kind of instrument I was running, it's, it's very... Um, awkward let's say and they break a lot and they want a lot of love and they want a lot of attention and it doesn't give you much time for doing anything else if you want to actually get any science done it's incredibly hard work um, and then it turned out we had the opportunity to move out to California it was actually due to my husband's job so we were in this awkward dilemma where I didn't want to give up my research but we were moving to California so I had to but then I was like oh I could write my book and I've always loved writing. I, when I was young, I used to write a lot of short stories and a lot of creative writing, and it's something I've always really enjoyed doing. And, but the challenge of writing a whole science book was really daunting because, you know, it's not something I've done before and I, I didn't really know how to do it. And so it was a really interesting process of speaking to the publishers and eventually getting it commissioned and then sitting down one day and going, right, okay, I've got to actually start writing this book. And so what I decided to write about was what I've learned in my postdoc, basically, um, all about these comet samples and asteroid samples and, and how I came to kind of love what I'm doing. So I just went off my passion for this stuff. Um, and, and it was, I loved writing. It turned out, yes, I actually quite enjoyed sitting in a small room, not speaking to every, anybody every day and just typing away. And my husband would come home and I'd literally just be in my little zone and, you know, I have to remember how to speak to people at the end. <laughs> so yeah, I really enjoyed the process. Um, and it just, it, I actually learned quite a lot at the same time because it kind of reminded me I had to work out how to explain certain things. And actually when you want to explain a really complex thing that I sort of just took for granted, I was like, actually when you break it down, it's actually quite hard to explain, so. I think that's the, the amazing thing about uh, space scholarship or anything in, in general, taking such, I mean, what, what, what we as normal citizens consider quite complex subjects are very foreign to us and translating it into our language. I think when you do it well, it's, it's, it's a mass hit. We all want to know. We all want to hear from guys like Stephen Hawking and then all the way to Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I know whose radio platform you work for. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's no, no mean feat. Yeah. I know. And I think when I was writing, you know, some people always go and it's a very old fashioned view or write it for your mum. And it's like, well, actually, you know, mums these days, you know, it's not like the old fashioned mums who don't know anything. You know, mums are very intelligent. Um, but I did write it for my mum because it just so happens that she didn't have an awful lot of education um, when she was younger. She went straight out to work at 16 and had no scientific background. Um, and, you know, I wrote it for her because I was like, if I can get my mum to understand this, then. And so it, it was that old fashioned view unfortunately but I know that isn't really the case these days that a lot of people have a lot of education a lot of mums um but I did I wrote it for her and she's got back to me and it, you know it almost brought tears to my eyes when she was reading it because I was just so happy that she was able to understand it and ask me questions and be like you know I, she's actually if you're asking questions like that you've understood what I've written so the feedback I've had is that it's it's actually really great for a general audience um and that's who I was writing it for I wasn't writing it for my peers in science because they know this stuff um so that that's been really nice to hear. So a little uh, question that maybe you could help us all out with, which is how do we as laypersons, I'm assuming people here are laypersons. Well, Sorry, yeah, that, we, we don't know who's in our audience. We don't, um, <laughs> I mean, let's, let's make this self-referent. How do I as a layperson, uh, if I want to learn more about space experientially, not just put my head in a textbook, how, what are some of the tools or techniques or resources that you would point us to so that we can start to 
unravel the mysteries of the universe in a relatively similar way to what you do? Obviously much more amateur. So one of the first things I'd say, I love podcasts and I know I make podcasts and so I naturally have uh, an interest in them but I've learned a lot through listening to podcasts as well because um, people always assume I know a lot about astronomy and I'm not an astronomer so actually I you know people ask me about the phases of the moon and I'm like I don't have a clue I'll tell you what the moon's made of and you know how it formed but I can't actually tell you a lot about looking at the moon um, so I listen to a lot of podcasts because it sounds like it wouldn't cover much science but actually they often do there's an incredible amount of information and when podcasts are made by specialists like I know the Star Talk ones often they've got proper specialists in and but they're science communicators so they're able to actually explain what they're talking about in a nice friendly manner I've learned a lot through that but there's also a lot of citizen science projects which you can get involved in so these are often online projects um, I know for the Stardust mission there was a whole citizen science project which was really popular um, and what it involved was basically searching for these particles that they'd found so I mentioned that they collected um, some of the comet dust particles on this tennis racket collector well on the back side of that collector they were collecting interstellar dust so this was just it was just flying about in space um, and they're traveling incredibly quickly but they're actually um, very very small so when they impacted the collector they're very hard to see so they brought it back to earth and they sort of put it aside for a while because they wanted to concentrate on the comet particles which were larger and easier to extract and, and look at but the interstellar particles they suddenly had this problem they were like they're so small we've got such a large area to search we don't know how we're going to find them so what they ended up doing was imaging this whole collector with a really high magnification. And then all these images got uploaded onto a web page. And then citizen scientists could come along. They had to take a little test, and the test involved them trying to, working out how to. Um, work out whether there was a particle in the image or not and if they passed the test they were then allowed to search through images and literally could sit there they weren't paid to do it it was just for the love of, of helping the scientists um, and they searched the images to find the particles now if they identified one in an image and then they told the scientists and the scientists went to that collector and found that there was one there that person was allowed to name the particle so they had like a vested interest so they actually got their names in papers in scientific papers because they were involved in the scientific process which is crazy because literally anyone could do it you hadn't needed no scientific okay. background whatsoever so but there are, there are many other projects like that you just need to kind of look online for citizen science and that's a great way in because it just you you probably then naturally want to learn about what you're actually doing so i like those two things where are the best places in the world to see the wonders of the night sky oh california has plenty it's you've just got to get away from from light pollution, which obviously being in San Francisco is not going to be very easy, but get out into the mountains. I mean, I, even where I live, I live near Fresno and it's not too bad. Like I, I can see a lot more than I can in the UK. In the UK, it's a lot um, busier. There's a lot more towns and light pollution is quite bad, but there still are dark sky areas. And um, if you Google dark sky, areas or regions then that's a great way to start but I yeah the mount I love the mountains anyway so that's a good place to go do some camping and look at the night sky we're gonna round up thank you everyone for coming thank you Natalie thank for you your for time. having me it was great I enjoyed it You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.